And I thought, wait a minute, Dave, I thought you hated war. I thought you thought it was so terrible. I thought, what a fragile person I am. Mm -hmm. When I'm in pain, when I'm suffering, suddenly I have these righteous, quote unquote, reasons to not do or do something. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Struker. Welcome to Unbeatable. My name is Jeff Struker, and this podcast is a series of episodes about people that are just doing amazing things or have gone through incredible circumstances. Guys and gals that have really been through some hard knocks or been dealt some difficult blows in life. And when life got difficult and they got knocked down a little bit, they dusted themselves off, got back up, and became unbeatable. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today. He and I have known each other for a long time. I have been a secret admirer admirer of his for a long time. I am thrilled to be able to introduce you to Dave Eubanks. Dave, thanks for joining us in this episode. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank God. Yeah. Um, so Dave, I want everybody to understand a little bit about who you are and what you're doing now, but in order for people to really get the, the significance of where you are, are right now and what you're doing, I want to back up a little bit because you got up at 4 a.m. on the other side of the world to be in this broadcast with me. It's evening time in the United States. It's 4 a.m. in Tajikistan, where you are, in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, where you are right now. And I want everybody to understand what brought you there and what you're trying to do. But in order to get there, let's talk a little bit about the Army and how you ended up in the Army. Because Dave, I consider myself a little bit of a thrill seeker. And as I, you know, know you and, and have watched you or, and heard your story over the years, it really seems like you have this uh, action and adrenaline um, desire as well. So tell me a little bit about your childhood and where your source of adventure came from. Well, I, my parents are missionaries, Christian missionaries in Thailand. They've been there 61 years. They're 91 and 89 years old, wonderful people. My dad was a army officer, fought in the Korean War, came back, became an oil man. My mom was on Broadway. She was the lead in Oklahoma, the original one that toured the U.S. What? Mom and dad, yeah, met Jesus and then met each other. And in the middle of that, felt God's call to leave their professions and serve God in a different way. You know, you can serve God. God's kingdom needs everyone. And you go where, where God calls you. And there's not one job is better than the other. So, but for them, my dad had this thing with God. You know, I can make a lot more difference in God's kingdom if I make a million dollars first. <laughs> and he thought he had to deal with God. You know, make a million or millions in the old business and then serve God. He made this deal with God. He was pretty sure it was correct. And he opened the Bible and prayed and said, show me a verse that will seal this agreement. And his finger landed on, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And he said, you know, God trusts a lot of people with a million dollars, but I wasn't one of them. <laughs> and he left the oil business. And my mom, without my dad knowing this, my mom had been wondering what she was going to do, continue as an actress and a singer or what, God. Met my dad. Actually, you know, they met during the Korean War. My dad was um, pulled back to build a secondary defensive line. My mom came, was leading a USO show, wow. singing. 
dad was tasked to take her around. And he thought, no way. I'm a combat guy. I'm not going to go back there and drive some actress around. That is terrible. I'm the company commander, man. But he gets ordered by the regimental commander, you will do it. Sees my mom, falls in love. My mom is I'm pretty amazing. She gets my dad to let her drive the Jeep. And they're on ice. And they instantly flip the Jeep. They don't get hurt. But the Jeep is in the ditch flipped. And they're standing there and his company comes by. And so he's already lost to my mom in a way. Anyhow, I was born in Texas and thus always a Texan and grew up though in Thailand. But I was nine months old, we went overseas. And I grew up out in the jungle and you're talking about thrill seeking and adventure. I, I remember the, the French Foreign Legion paratroopers, some of the best soldiers mm-hmm. ever in the world. And one other French conventional general set of them with disgust. They're adventurers masquerading as soldiers. And I thought, that's me. I'm an adventurer masquerading as a soldier. And I feel that, especially on the special operations side, you need those people. You need the Kit Carsons, yeah. Davy Crockett, Daniel Boones. They're going to follow orders. They're going to be disciplined in practice. There's something inside them that says, we can do more. We can figure out more. And, and to me, part of that, too, is following the creative God. Mm-hmm. Now, us humans have creativity as well, but we're limited. We, we, we're not God. And so we make systems and forms and disciplines so that we can channel our creativity in effective ways. But as you do those disciplined activities so you can work as a team, so you can accomplish a mission, God is still God. He still has ways you've never thought of to accomplish this particular problem. And that's part of adventure. You know, the hobbits have another um, definition of adventure. Dirty, nasty things make you late for dinner. Well, that's real adventure. You don't know what's going to happen. So... I think that's something God puts in all of us in, in different ways and amounts. But I grew up um, riding horses since I was five. My dad taught me to shoot, ride, and swim by the time I was five. And we lived out in the, in the, in the countryside, a lot, a lot near the jungle and all that, out in, in the 60s in Thailand, where you needed four-wheel drive to go anywhere. In the rainy season, sometimes you could not drive. And that's, that was my upbringing. So I think I was always a little adventurer. Yeah. And when I was, I remember when I was four years old, putting a little stocking cap on, I'd seen it from some picture of World War II British commandos and crawling around the house, pulling security in, in Thailand. And my dad, my grandfather uh, caught wild horses in Yakima, Washington, and was a boxer on the side. And so that maybe that's in the, in the blood mm-hmm. as well. But I remember when I was five, and I walked out behind our house in Thailand. My, my parents are you know, full-time missionaries by then. And I remember looking up at the sky thinking, I don't know why I thought this. One day I will be a soldier, then I'll be a missionary. Clear as day. And you know, was that my father? Because I, I love him and admire him to this day. I, I was just thinking, Jeff, I'm so glad mom and dad are alive. Yeah. The moment they die, if they die before me, it's going to be really tough. And I know a lot of listeners have already lost their parents. And I, I think, wow, I'm so sorry. I am so grateful mine are here. And one day I'll lose them too. And then that, you know, just talking about that reminds me of something I learned later on in seminary when I left the army, the first day in class, you can live well with sorrow. You can't live well with shame. And so sorrow is about love. And when you love and, and that's lost in one way or the other, that hurts. Jesus wept, yeah. but it's okay. You can still love. You can still enjoy life. You can still function and cry every day about something. That's sorrow but we can't live with shame and shame is what Jesus takes away. Right. And that's one of the reasons he came to die and live for us. 
So I grew up as a missionary kid and with Christian parents. They, they didn't even believe, they were very Christian. They believe in Jesus, they follow him. But my dad is a scientist and tough guy. And my mom is very smart. And my dad would say, you know, the devil, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just a construct to explain certain things. But my mom and dad both met the devil in different forms as missionaries. And at one point, my dad literally saw the devil in a, in a confrontation, which he didn't know was real. And the devil said to him, I am Satan, and I beat you. And my dad said, you are, and you have. And he went back to my mom. This is probably 19, mid-1960s. And said, honey, what's it say in the Bible about the devil? What does it say? And they read, and then to their amazement, you know, that's like a lot of Jesus' miracles, a lot of Jesus' actions are freeing people from demons. I was coming against Satan right in the beginning when he goes out and to start his ministry. He does 40 days, and who does he meet? The devil. Yeah. I mean, he, that's like when all of us, okay, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve Jesus. I've asked him to forgive my sins. I'm going to start this and this. And you really want to expect to meet angels and, <laughs> right. and people that are going to help meet the devil. Like, God, come on. And, but Jesus defeats him. Then all through his life and at his physical death uh, to now, and he still defeats him. And for some reason, God allows the devil to exist. God allows us to choose the devil's way. God allows us to do evil. I'm here right now in Tajikistan because we're trying to help people in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. which is right next door, just south of yeah. us. Why? Because people have chosen evil. And not just those people. It's not just the Afghans and Taliban and other people fighting. Even my own country, America, we chose to leave people behind. Not just Afghans. We chose to leave Americans. Mm -hmm. That was a conscious choice. I was that. And that hurts. But me, myself, I've chosen evil things. And I, I, I will in the future. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and so none of us are clean. None of us are perfect. Like, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line of good and evil isn't between this group and that group, this country and that country. It's in the human heart. Mm -hmm. It's right here. And every day we have to decide, I'm going to follow Jesus or not. Who am I serving? And another thing he said which is part of that statement was in the worst person, there's always a shred of good and a possibility for more. And in the best person, there's always a shred of evil and the possibility for mm. more. So that's our real human condition. And the great thing about that is that Jesus anytime can come in, forgive us our sins and help us start again, no matter what we've done, mm -hmm. no matter who we betrayed, including betraying he's bigger and more powerful. But I think part of the reason the devil is allowed to do things while we're allowed to do things that are wrong because God loves us. He wants us to be free. You know, freedom yeah. is something precious gift God gives. And going back to adventure, that's part of freedom. Yeah. Adventure is, I'm going to go try that no matter, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't want to even get a paper cut. I don't want to get hurt, <laughs> but I want to see what's going to happen. I want to experience that activity or the, that those people or that environment. And I'm just going to go out and see. That's part of the adventure. You yeah. don't know what's going to happen. And that's God's freedom. That's God's love for us saying, God, I made, you know, God says to us, I made the world. I called it. Good. Take it. Go for it. And, but if you want to, if you want to maximize your life and live well, my kingdom first, before right. this kingdom, I made, yeah. I made a bigger kingdom. Yeah. So that's how I grew up in, in Southeast Asia. And when I was seven years old, I went to boarding school because there was no school where I lived. And while I was in boarding school, I became homesick because I don't see my mom and dad for months. Mm -hmm. I got dengue fever 
and I was very physically sick. I remember laying there, you know, you're seven years old and homesick and physically sick, far away from your parents. Um, I called out, to, I said, Jesus, I know mom and dad say you're real, but are you real for me? And I felt his presence. Later, I would call that love. Well, God is love. What would you expect when God comes but love? And I started to follow Jesus when I was seven. My dad baptized me when we went back on school break mm -hmm. when I was eight. And I followed him very poorly ever since. You know, that gets to maybe another part of the story. Uh, I want you to run this, this interview. But I've had this experience that Jesus is real. He is present on this earth with us. He can overcome anything. He brings good from everything, even my bad. And he's going to show us a better way. And he's the only lasting thing that I have to offer. You know, here, help trying to help the Afghans. We're going to try to get food, water, blankets, whatever we can get. Mm -hmm. We're going to try to tell their story. All that's important. But the most lasting thing I can give is call Jesus' name, man. Call his name. He has an answer for you. Yeah, Dave, so you get your good looks from your mother is what I just heard you say, and you get your tenacity uh, yeah. and from your father, which is a fascinating com uh, combination. I got, I got my coffee. Yeah. This fascinating com combination ultimately leads you to decide, hey, I want to do for real the stuff that I was doing in the house at five years old. I think I want to join the Army and become uh, and and become a special operator. So tell a little bit about uh, your decision to join the army, and and talk to me about your first few years in the U.S. Army. Well, I always wanted to be a soldier, and I read about the Rangers. I actually, someone you know, we're in Thailand in the '60s. There was no TV, there was no phone, um, and this missionaries would or visitors would come. I may see foreigners a couple times a year. And one foreigner dropped off a comic book. And I remember seeing a picture of Sergeant Rock on some mission. He's looking over his shoulder, and someone says, Ice Cream Soldier says to him, one of the characters, who are those guys? And he goes, those are the Rangers, America's best. It was some, you know, D-Day thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember that. That was the first time I saw a picture, a drawn picture of a Ranger. And uh, who are they? But I'd already heard of them from my dad because my the, the Eubank line going way back, from the beginning of America, we're all soldiers. Almost every generation has been a soldier fighting in the, the wow. before the Revolutionary War, in the Revolutionary War, in the Civil War. We're on the South Side, from Texas, and in all the other wars in between. My my grandfather, World War One. My grand my dad, Korean War. And so, that's all in there. I heard about it, and I read about the Rangers, and I read about Special Forces. So I always was going to be a soldier before I even knew the name of what they were. I was out there playing war before I even knew what an American soldier was. So I think that was in me. I, I like this saying, I'm not sure who said it, John Piper or somebody, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive, because the world needs people who've come alive. Wow. Well, being a soldier made me come alive. And I think all that is good if it's offered to God. But for me in the beginning, it was just, who I was and what I like to do. I like to fight also. I was an idiot, but anyways, I liked it. And I grew up, was in high school, played sports, did all that. And then I applied for a, a military scholarship. And I remember by then, in high school it was in the 70s, but by the 60s and early 70s was Vietnam War. Special Forces were right next door. Mm -hmm. And they were behind the lines with the tribal people. I remember a picture in National Geographic of Captain Gillespie, 
wearing a loincloth with a 45 strap on his hip, jungle boots and an M1 carbine. And he's walking with these guys. And whatever they do, he does. And it's like walking with a Comanche or Apache. And I thought, I like that. I want to do that's what I'm living like right now. I'm going to do that. You know, I've already had my horse and everything. So the more I learned about special forces, the more I thought I want to do that. And during the Vietnam War, the CIA ran an operation called Air America. Mm-hmm. And there were special forces going behind the lines into Laos and helping the Laotian tribal people fight the communist um, governments. And we had special forces on leave would come and parachute supplies to us, the Boy Scouts. I mean, we're not a normal Boy Scout group. <laughs> You're walking for 10 days in the jungle, getting air resupply. You got one canteen a day you got to drink water from. My dad was a scoutmaster, ex-soldier. One of the scout advisors um, had parachuted into Normandy with 101st, got shot through the neck. He's in one of the episodes of Band of Brothers. Wow. He was our senior advisor. He's also the CIA area chief. And he's airdropping stuff to us. And he would say, you know, one canteen a day is all you can drink. This is Southeast Asia, 100-something degrees. And that was water discipline. Actually, it works. You know, because if you, if you have time, water, your body does adapt. Just go mm-hmm. out anywhere with someone in, the Sudan, in Sudan, and and it's been there their whole life running around. They got this much water, and they're fine. So I grew up with that kind of, like, super hardcore training. And... Of course, we were all in that environment. We were used to that environment. We, but we got tougher. And the Boy Scouts like being in the Army. So when I, I got a scholarship to Texas A&M University, <clears throat> that's where my granddad and dad went. That's where my daughters are at now. So all we're right. all bought the Kool-Aid all right. and drank. So I was commissioned there as an infantry officer. Then I was um, stationed in Panama. After that, I thought, I'll go Special Forces. But my company commander... Uh, Colonel Ball, retired Colonel Ball now, he had been in the first, he'd got a silver star in Vietnam um, as an, as an infantryman. And then later in special forces, got a battlefield commission, came back, joined the first range battalion when they stood up and then jumped wow. into Grenada. And he was amazing company commander. And he said, you, what are you going to do now? Lieutenant Eubank. I said, I'm going to go, you know, as soon as I make this, I'm going to go to um, SF training, SF selection. He goes, no, no, no. You can always go to SF. You should do the Rangers first. Huh. Okay. And he goes, I'll get you in right now. He gets up the phone. This is in Panama. Calls up somebody because everybody knows him. And next thing I know, I'm going to what was called RIP in those days, Ranger Indoctrination Program, Selection Program. And I ended up in the 2nd Ranger Battalion. I served there. And then after I was captain, I went to advanced course. I went to Special Forces Selection. And then I was in Special Forces. So all together just under 10 years of infantry rangers and special forces when I felt God's call saying, I have something else. You don't have to take it. If you put me first, you can um, put God first, your men second and you last and serve God in the army, or you can get up and see what happens. And I was like, wow. And I, that was a year long yeah. prayer decision with a lot of other story that goes with that, which I'm happy to tell. But finally I decided to get out and got out and went to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I met my wife now and uh, asked her to marry her, meet me right away, which she said no. But at the same time, a tribe in Burma, Burma is now in 72 years of civil war. A tribe in Burma had a representative come out to Thailand, which is next door. And Burma is also called Myanmar, mm-hmm. but came out to Thailand and said, please come and help. And my dad, who's a missionary, and everybody knows him there. And had a picture of me with a green beret special forces hat on 
behind him. And uh, they all know who special forces are from the Vietnam War. And this tribal guy in Burma said, if that man's a warrior and following Jesus, send him. Because we, this was the Wa tribe of Burma, they were headhunters. We, the Wa tribe, are warrior people, but my people need Jesus. So my dad called me those days before cell phones, called me, tracked me down to where I was trying to date my wife to be. She wouldn't even date me, but I was at her apartment. She's a school teacher with her, with, with her roommate. And the phone rings, and it's my dad. Dave, I'm sitting here with the Wa leaders from Burma. They're in my living room in Thailand. Pray about coming. I think it's the Holy Spirit. And I prayed, turned to my wife-to-be, and said, I love you. I want you to marry me. I'd already asked her like three times. We, we, we hadn't been on dates, but I took her climbing. Our first mm-hmm. date was, our first event was climbing Mount Shuxon near the Canadian border. It's a technical peak. And she was one of the few that made the summit. We were on ropes. She's never climbed. Ice axe, wow. crampons. I'm going up the gully on ice. I got two ice axes in. I'm looking down between my legs to make sure she's okay. <laughs> How are you doing? She has this big, real smile. I'm digging it. Most of my guy friends are like, nice, fake smile. She goes, ah, ah, you know. So anyways, I said, I guess we're not going to get married. I've got to follow God because I have a whole other story of when I didn't follow God, which didn't end well at all. And now I know I got to follow God. Well, to make a long story short, God connected us very quickly. We got married in Malibu, California in 1993 and then went to Burma. And that's the story. And there's other things that caused me to, to, um, to follow God seriously my second time, but back to you. Well, so you, you had about 10 years in the army and you did it. You had a chance to do some of the most difficult and really some of the most elite, uh, things uh, in those 10 years in the army. Take just a minute or two and describe what was some of the greatest things that happened or the greatest opportunities you had. And maybe one or two of those real challenges that you experienced while you were in the army Rangers or infantry or in the army special forces. Well, first of all, I missed all the wars <laughs> and that's a major bummer. Cause I was there from the late eighties, mid eighties until 92 black Hawk down was in 92. Mm-hmm. And I was out by then I was in seminary when it happened. I couldn't believe it. And I went into infantry. I picked Panama. I thought there's going to be a fight there. This is back in 1984. And the fight came later. Um, but I thought, this is going to be a fight here. I'm going to be in it. And went there. There was no fight. But we had, this is the, the Army in those days was pretty awesome. In my command post, really my office in the barracks on Fort Clayton, I had a wall locker. As a, as a, I, became, I was a scout platoon later eventually. I had a wall locker with live ammo in it and hand grenades. Unlocked in my office. For hip pocket training in place, there was no time to go to the ASP, the ammo supply point. And I remember one day I had my wall locker open, all the ammunition's there, enough for my platoon to do one live fire drill. It, it, it just came up. My company commander, Captain Ball, looked in, he saw the door open, he says, Dave, just keep that door closed. That was the army I was in. You did not get in trouble for being ready. You did not get in trouble for being dangerous. You got in trouble if you did something wrong yeah. with that. And I love that that lack of risk aversion. When I was in, they didn't ask you, where are you going on leave? That's your business. As a free American, you go wherever you want. You do something wrong, you're going to pay. And I I think that actually tying to adventure is really crucial part of war. You don't just need a bunch of people only follow these rules. You need people who follow the rules to play as a team, but they can think outside them. They have a bigger cause. You know, the British used to give long service leave. Their officers would take off for months 
And okay, had they done their due, they applied for leave. Three months, Francis' young husband, I was just talking about him here, crossing from on his own from China to what's now the Wakhan court of Afghanistan into Pakistan, which is in the Northwest Territories, and found a whole route, free intel, made friends, gave that whole report to the British government. It's hard to pay a guy to do that by himself, by himself. How much better did he get? How much did England get from all that communication and relationships? And in World War II, some of the heroes of the British Army in World War II that stayed behind and fought against the Japanese when the British were driven out were all people who on their own went to climb in the Himalaya. They were officers in the Army. They weren't told, you have to stay and do only these things. That made this tiny British Army one of the most effective fighting forces in the world. Because the individuals, like I tell my rangers, we have something called Freedom Rangers. That's our organization. I tell them, if you're on a mission and, and you've got a complex problem, ask your leaders, can't solve the problem, give me a radio sat phone call and let me know. But if none of that works, you've tried to get guidance. Stop and pray because your real general is Jesus Christ. Ask him and he's going to tell you what to do and I will back you all the way. I don't care if it breaks everything. We'll both learn from your mistake, but I want you to be bold, man. Bold in the things of Jesus, humble things of man, and nothing we have is really sacred. The only sacred thing is my soul and following Jesus and other people's souls. So go for it. We'll back you all the way. And anyway, that's that's how I don't I even forgot the question. What was your question again? <laughs> Sorry. My question was just some of those great experiences and really one or two of those really tough experiences in the army. Okay. I remember one of the, the great experiences was not very nice, but I mean, one, when, when I was in ranger school, I, was, I went to ranger school as cadet. There was a time you could do that. And you're way behind the power curve because you don't know any, anything. <laughs> What's a formation? I mean, I was in a core cadet, so I knew that, but you don't know any of the army stuff. And I remember the first night in ranger school, they, they, they called us out in uniform. You know, you, you go in, you end process there. Um, oh man, where are we at? Where, where is Fort Benning? Fort Benning. We're in Fort yeah. Benning. We're there in these barracks out in whatever area we're in, piney, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we, we process, it's about 1130, we can go to sleep, you know, as if we're going to sleep because you're not. We get in at 1130, we're smoked. You've been going the whole day. At 12 o'clock, the bunks are getting kicked over. You're getting screamed at. Fall out. Uniform was jungle boots and M16, you know, the, the fake rubber duck. No clothes. Fuck naked. So I run out there in my jungle boots, M16. I weigh about 150 pounds on a good day. I'm pretty small. And I run out there, and they call my name, my roster number, and I'm now the company commander. And behind me are real rangers from the battalions who have been sent to get their tabs. Vietnam War recon marine who's going to get his tab. He's like the old, one of the oldest guys there. A Navy SEAL who's just naked but covered in hair. Looks like a Neanderthal right behind me. You know, 300 and something guys. I think it was 360 guys. Huge class of naked men. I'm in front of them. And I run out in formation. I'm standing there in Sergeant Swackhammer. Real name. <laughs> Sergeant Swackhammer, wherever you are, if you listen to this, you're done. And great guy. He, you know, he knew how to be tough and smile all the time. He comes walking out there looking like Thor. He picks me up with one arm under my armpit. One arm presses me over his head. Now, imagine this, man. I'm, it's not a pretty picture, but I'm naked. He's holding me up in the air. I have an M16 rubber one in my other hand. You don't feel very manly at that moment. And he goes, what you going to do, wild man? <laughs> he puts me down. 
and he says, he knows I'm a cadet, you know, he knows I'm, I know nothing. And he goes, I want you to take this company and I want you to do this, 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 like five complex movements and get them over there. And I stood there and I'm sure I prayed because I pray a lot because I need Jesus. I, and I just thought this, first sergeant, post. And that big old gigantic Harry Seal, who was the first sergeant, comes here. And I, I just relayed the information to him. I thought, let the NCO Smart. do it. And, and so I got out of that, I got out of that nightmare. And that was my, the beginning. But I remember in ranger school, my ranger buddy was Chris Sorensen, who led the first attack against Omar, um, Mullah Omar's compound in Afghanistan, um, right in the beginning of that fight. He and I were in ranger school together. We were in the second range battalion together. We were in first special forces group together. When I felt God's call to leave, I left. He ended up in, in CAG or Delta and great friend. Well, he and I are ranger buddies, that whole class and cheating like crazy, but um, learning a lot. But I remember one thing I learned during ranger school, you know, you're hungry, especially in those days. People can talk about the old days, you know, and say, oh, it was, it was harder. Well, sometimes it actually was. Life isn't a circle. It's not. Some things do change. You know, Nazi Germany was one way, pretty evil and horrible. Now it's not. Things change. So when I was in ranger school, you got one day, one meal a day, maybe. Sometimes you didn't get that mm -hmm. because of the air, the airdrop didn't come in the mountains. And there was no, there was nothing you're going to do about it. And so we were starving and hungry and and then, you know, pressure to do tasks. I, I love ranger school because the pressure of that lack of food and sleep and then being graded and then having to physically conduct a mission, but not just you, everybody else who's feeling like you to do something, that combination of pressure um, is a great training platform. And I remember my ranger, my ranger battalion commander once asked me, what'd you learn from ranger school? I said, how weak I was. I thought yeah. I was a stud. I don't quit. Yeah. I never quit. But it doesn't matter if you don't quit. You can be the toughest guy in the world. When you run out of food and sleep long enough, everybody cracks. Even if you never surrender, which I didn't, your brain doesn't work anymore, right? You can't even do a math problem. You can't even see straight. So it's a great equalizer. And at some point, everybody is broken down and not functioning very well. And I remember we were laying an ambush out and setting up claymores, you know, a fake ambush, a training event, a graded exercise. And I was in, I was tired. This is in Florida, swamp phase. I was tired. Uh, my brain wasn't working. I was starving. I was down to 137 pounds at that point. And I had no fat. I wrestled at Texas A&M. I had no fat to start with. And everybody's wasted. We're down to 60-something people. And we're like the walking dead. And I remember thinking how evil it is to set up an ambush to dismember and slaughter human beings. Just evil. And I became very self-righteous in my mind, read my little Bible. They allowed you to have that a little, you know, it's like a one thing you could have. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly had this huge aversion to war and killing. And I became extremely disgusted with what we're doing. I did not think that much about why did I suddenly feel this now? You know, pain has a way of altering your mm -hmm. perspective. You're a, when you're back in um, planning a climb of a big mountain, because I like to climb. We would climb in the Himalaya. We'd climb Mount McKinley in Alaska or Denali. We climbed all over. My, my son has a record on Rainier and the Teton for the youngest to do it. We climb all over. And when you get ready to climb, it's amazing how this group wants to do it. You get to the parking lot the next day to start like a two, three-day ice climb or something. There's like less people in the parking lot. And then when you start going and the storms hit and fear comes and it's physically super demanding and super dangerous, you sound, start sounding really wise. I remember on, on Denali, Mount, McK uh, Mount McKinley, 
How many expeditions were up there, including military ones? I won't name them, but every elite group we got was there when I was there in 98. And everyone started sounding wise and mature, like, you know, this, not, this mountain's not worth dying on. You know, let's not let ego drive us. You know, we have to enjoy the nature. All those are true of the sayings, but why didn't you say them back in the parking lot? Why are you saying them now? Because you're in pain, man. You feel physical pain and you're scared. And it's readjusted everything. And it reminded me, don't um, question what God showed you in the light when now you're walking through the darkness. And so back to that Ranger School event, I did the ambush, clacked off the fake claymores. We did our thing. Then we got food for the first time in like two days because they missed a meal on an airdrop. And suddenly I had this energy flowing through me and I wasn't the leader anymore. And I was happy and I was patrolling across. I'm almost done. I'm going to tab out. And I thought, wait a minute, Dave, I thought you hated war. I thought you thought it was so terrible. I thought, what a fragile person I am. Mm -hmm. When I'm in pain, when I'm suffering, suddenly I have these righteous quote unquote reasons to not do or do something. When I'm feeling great, you know, it's not, it's kind of like if you've ever been in an ambush or conducted an ambush, when you're walking in the low ground and the enemy's about to kill you, it is terrifying. And all you want to do is not be there. And you cannot stand the thought of fighting anyone because you're going to lose. It's amazing though. In one minute, if that changes and you're on the high ground and they're coming down the draw and these are some wicked people who've done wicked things, game on man. bring suddenly the biggest stud. And so I thought, wow, no, 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 I'm not a stud. I'm a little person and I can do studly things. I can do cowardly things. I can call them whatever, but the only sure way is to follow Jesus. Right. So when, I, when, when I was in the army, we got sent to Panama because the special forces um, were overtasked and the things they were doing didn't have anybody. So he sent our, my scout platoon leader, my scout platoon. And I was a first lieutenant, brand new first lieutenant. My counterpart was a Peruvian general. We we're doing counter narcotics in the Amazon jungle. Just our team. That was it. We didn't even have maps. I would shoot my M203 with star clusters every day. And a, a Navy plane coming off a carrier would fly over, take photos. They would be relayed back. A week later, we'd go back. And me and the pilot would draw grid lines and make our own grids so he would know where I was if I needed support. So that was just fun. And anyway, in the military, I think, you know, being on a little bird, doing airfield seizure, that's exciting. All that was, was good. I remember once in Special Forces, we were, I was a halo team leader, altitude parachute mm -hmm. team leader in first group. We're flying on a mission. This is just a training mission in Fort Lewis, Washington. And we're flying, we're, we're on oxygen, and we're, we're up at high altitude. And the ramp opens, and the moon is sitting on the end of the ramp. I mean, it just like fills the whole ramp. And I heard one guy takes his mask to the side, and he yells, I love America. <laughs> and the green light comes on. It was like wild geese. Because, you know, you rarely do this. You got so much gear on. But this time, we didn't have gear. We're just all running and diving off the ramp into the moon. It was the coolest thing. And I thought, mm -hmm. I love America, too. This is awesome. So th those were my, you know, some of my experiences in, in the Rangers and in, in NSF. I went as an advisor to the Thais. We, we did their first, we trained their first ranger unit to do airfield seizures, which we learned in Ranger Battalion. But there were no big wars during that time, except for the Panama invasion. And I just left Ranger Battalion, gone to Special Forces, finished selection, and, the, and got ready to go to the real training. And the Panama invasion happened. I'm like, no way, no way. And um, 2nd Battalion, which I was part of, 
jumped into Rio Hato. They had mm-hmm. probably one of the biggest fights in that invasion. And I thought, I can't believe it, God. You must not really like me because this is a real bummer to miss this. And then after that, I was in Special Forces when the, the first Gulf War kicked off. And then we got ready to go. But that thing was over. The, the ground portion was over in three days. So we missed that. And I just thought, man. So there was no 9-11 on, that we knew of on the horizon. There was nothing happening. At the same time, an important part of the story I need to tell is I got married. Not to the wife I'm married to now. To another lady. And while, while I was in the Rangers. And she was beautiful and very nice and wonderful, but had a lot of issues, um, very like big issues. We all have issues, but these are some visible ones um, of how she acted and believed. But I thought, I can fix that. I haven't failed climbing a mountain. And the fights I do lose, I never quit. And I like it. And um, also, I became physically involved with her. It means I had sex with her. And that definitely skews your, um, your, your attitude. Up to that point, I was totally pure, not in my mind, but in my body. And I went down that road before we got married. What a mistake, man. And then I knew as, and then I have to ask her to marry, right? That's my sense of honor. You know, I'm like a, like a Pharisee or a, a very good Muslim. Oh, I got to do this now. But you don't compound a wrong by adding another one. And this is the thing about Jesus. When you've done 10 wrong things, if you just stop and say, I'm wrong, it looks impossible to untangle this, but I will obey you at all costs. It's never failed that Jesus has got me a way out ever. It's usually completely humbling, um, but it's always a way out. He's bigger than any problem you could ever imagine yourself in. But I wasn't completely surrendered to Jesus. And so I thought, I'm going to, oh, I failed God. I've done the wrong thing. I can only do the right thing. Get married, and that's it. That was a huge mistake. We weren't for each other. I'm sure of it. I just did it. And it became pretty volatile. And after about three years, she left. And I thought, I'm the aggrieved person. You know, I never cheated on her. I, I didn't get drunk. I never beat her. I didn't do anything wrong. I did one thing only wrong, is I didn't have God first. And then God's not first. What's the person? They're really last, right? And so I don't know if I'd follow Jesus if it would have worked. It might have, but I wasn't following Jesus. So that, that question's gone. And I thought I was right. Her parents thought I was right. Oh, this terrible lady, why is she doing this? And I asked Jesus, show me the truth of what happened is after she divorced me. And when I said those, asked those words, I was on my knees in a second like that. I had to be on my knees. I just felt my, like sick to my stomach on my knees. Tears running down my face, and I saw a picture of the world, and on the world was a little man. That was me, and there was the blue of outer space. I mean, the blue atmosphere and the black of outer space, and there was a lightning bolt, a chasm. It cut through the black, the blue of the atmosphere, through me, through the world, out the other side, and gone. And this name of this chasm was called divorce. I thought, oh, it's a big deal. Just like angels. Praise God when a sinner comes to Jesus, they must cry when people, it doesn't matter whose fault, doesn't matter who did what to who. These are two precious humans that betrayed each other. And I thought, and this verse came to me, unto much is given, much is required. I've been given everything. I have wonderful parents. I met Jesus early. I could do things. I, I could be in the Rangers and Special Forces. I could play sports. I could, school wasn't that hard. This girl had a different life. And my whole new feeling for her 
came to me, kind of like a father and a daughter. She's also quite a bit younger than me. And I began to love her in a whole new way. And I just said, I'm sorry. Well, to make a kind of long story short, that's when I asked God, do I stay in the army? Because there's no way I can be a missionary now. No way. You cannot be divorced and be a missionary. You're a loser, dude. And, um, I, I, and I asked God, what's your opinion of that? And I just opened the Bible and said, show me. And my finger came on, on Isaiah 6, 8. And in that verse, God is asking, who's going to go? Who's going to go? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. But he says, I'm a man of unclean lips among the people of unclean lips. And an angel comes and purifies. Go. And I felt this what God said to me. No, no, no. I'll decide. You guys are all impure down there because <laughs> you don't make good decisions. But I love you anyways. And I work through people. I work through only broken people. There's no other kind of people. And I love you anyway. So anyway, um, that that was kind of a confirmation to me that, excuse me a second. Hey, you guys, I, I, this is a recorded thing. So you guys got to help me out here. Can you tell the next person comes in? Because I don't want to blow his thing. These are my ranger buddies. Most of them are naked too. All right. Uh-oh. Oh, hang on. Stand by. That's Blake, ex-Navy SEAL. That's Miles, Marine, who served in Afghanistan. And he just did an apology for the Marine Corps in, in um, Dari. It was pretty awesome. And that's Shannon. Yeah, make sure you get the naked guys in, yeah. in this right. podcast. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, and to make a long story short in that regard, I ended up, my, my wife got married, my ex-wife got married to another guy later on. I was free. Actually, I like that part. You know, what I'm telling you is, is true. I was guilty of not putting God first. I shouldn't have married her. And thus I wasn't a very great husband. And then Jesus convicted me of my sin. I confessed it. He forgave me. I had a whole new love for her. We were reconciled, not as husband and wife. It was over by then. And she got married. I was glad to be free. And you know, my mom said to me later, Dave, that's how much she loved you. She knew you guys could never work it out. You had to do something different. And she couldn't live that life. She loved you that much. And later on, this lady told me pretty much the same thing. And I thought, wow. Wow. You love more than I. And so I, and when about a couple of months after it was over, because it happened fast, um, I can't remember the, the administrative process, but it was really fast. We had no kids and nothing. It was like, like within a month, man, boom, 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 done. And I went and asked to meet her and her parents and her parents were always on my side. I, I'm still very close to them, but I went there and I remember I got on my knees in front of her parents and her, and I asked forgiveness for not, being a follower of Jesus and not being a good husband. I asked that of Julie in front of her parents. And I asked that of her parents um, in front of Julie. And they were both surprised because they knew the whole picture, but they both forgave me and I was free. So later on, this lady, Julie, got remarried, has two amazing kids, wonderful kids. And she asked me to baptize them. Me? Baptize your kids? Wow. Really? And she's become friends. I mean, we almost never see each other. I haven't seen Julie probably 10 years. But she looks up to my wife, Karen, the one I'm married to now, for the last 28 years, a lot. And I thought, wow, Julie, you know Jesus in some ways better than me. <laughs> you forgave me. You had me baptize your kids. 
oh my goodness, what a Christian soap opera. And, but I think for me anyways, the truth of it is without Jesus, I'm lost and I can accomplish human things, but for what purpose? And there's certain things I can't accomplish, even the human things. I just can't do it. Not well. And so I thank God that he um, took that mistake that we both made. You know, I, I kind of think Julie and I deserve each other. I, was, I didn't follow God in one way. She didn't follow God in another way. We were boom together. But God redeemed that. And um, she has a wonderful husband. Her kids are grown now. They're phenomenal. Um, after that, I thought, well, I'm not going to get married probably because I don't deserve anybody. And then I met my wife, Karen. This is 20, 28 years ago. And it was in church. I was still in special forces. And she comes walking down the aisle. So my friend of mine said, actually, a friend of mine said, Dave, um, I was dating my this friend, this girl. And I took her down to Yosemite in winter. And we drove from Washington State to Yosemite in one push, like 18 hours. I had the door open on 395, looking at the white line. The snow was so heavy. No sleep. Get to Yosemite. Start ice climbing. No sleep. All day into the next night. Mitts on, freezing. And after the second day, we haven't slept. We're just climbing. This girl goes, Dave, I can't do this, but I know someone who might do this, but it's not me. I want you to meet somebody else. I was like, I was kind of already in love with this girl. Like, oh, great. I think that means no. And we drove back to Washington State. And at church, I met Karen. And she's walking down the aisle, smiling. She didn't know me. She didn't know she's even going to meet me. She's going to go meet her friend who introduced us. And this, she exuded joy, love of life, and purity. I could just see it like a flower. And when I asked her out right away, she's like, no. Um, but then I, I, okay, I'll go climbing. What, what's climbing? And next thing we were climbing Shuxon with rope, ice axe, front pointing. You know, who does that your first climb? Multi-day event. Hey guys, thank you for joining us for this episode today. And don't forget, you can find this podcast on social media pretty much everywhere. Just search for at Unbeatable Podcast. And you can join the Unbeatable Army by going to unbeatablearmy.com and joining our email list. You got to come back next week and hear the second half of this incredible story. See you next time.